The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. It's Dexcom. With the new Dexcom G7, you get better diabetes results without those awful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or to your watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affect your glucose. It makes it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's so easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. There's not too many things in this world that I enjoy more than going fishing. And one particular type of fish I like to seek out, in freshwater that is, are catfish. I love catfish and you know, one of the hubs of catfishing in America is actually Oklahoma. You get up there in that red clay, those stained rivers, and they they catch some of the biggest cats around. When you go fishing sometimes, you hook into things that you didn't expect to hook into. And sometimes you find things that will just absolutely chill you to the core. Today, we're going to talk about four men who are all shot, dismembered, and their bodies were tossed into the Grand Fork River. 
in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. I'm Joseph Scott Morton, and this is Body Bags. My dear friend Jackie Howard is with me today. She's the executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Jackie, you like to fish. Would it surprise you for me to say yes, I do? I like to fish, too. And, you know, the thing about Oklahoma is that all those shows that you see on TV many times, some of these shows from back just a few years ago, have you seen these guys that go into the river and they go noodling? Oh, yes. No, where they, not me. They uh-uh. dip their arms into the water and they wiggle their fingers around and some big old cat will bite their hand and arm and they just pull it out. And to me, it's terrifying because being from Louisiana, I know what else is underneath there. And it's not alligators. They don't have alligators up in Oklahoma, I don't think. But they do have snapping turtles, and I'm terrified of them. You know, they say a snapping turtle won't turn loose of your finger until it thunders. So I'm, I'm terrified of that. Good reason to be. <laughs> I'm absolutely terrifying. But I got to tell you, this case today on Body Bags is absolutely horrific. I, I, I was amazed when this came up in my news feed, and I began to kind of dig into it a little bit. This is another one of those cases, and I guess all of our cases are, Joe, that we just look at, and it's so hard to comprehend and understand. Four friends, actually two brothers and two other friends, Billy Chastain, 30 years old, his brother, Mark Chastain, 32 years old, Mike Spikes, 32 years old, and Alex Stevens, 29. They left Billy's home on bicycles on the evening of Sunday, October 9th, and they were reported missing soon thereafter. They were not seen again. That's a very odd way to go missing, pedaling off on a bicycle. And then their bodies were recovered in a local river. And as you said, they had been shot and dismembered. Mode of transportation off the bat, Joe, how do you follow a bicycle if you're trying to track these? Let's just say, start there. You're trying to track these guys. How do you track a bicycle? Look, you know, when I said that this, this, the case kind of shocked me when it popped up on my feed and I began to kind of dig into it a little bit. One of the reasons is bicycles. I don't know that I've ever encountered a homicide like this, singular, much less a quadruple homicide. And that's what we're talking about here. How do you track them? And one interesting piece to this as well that the sheriff kind of let slip out up there in the news conference. And this is kind of wild, too. They were actually pulling wagons behind the bicycles. And I'm thinking, why in the world would you be doing this? And these these Fellows were not out on like an afternoon ride. You know, like you see these guys wearing spandex and they're riding up and down the road and they're going for time and distance. No, 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 no. That's that's not what this is. These guys were using this as a mode of transportation to get to a specific location. And the sheriff has implied, at least, that their destination was to a location where they could get involved in some mischief where they were going to be involved in something that they shouldn't have been involved in. And to this moment in time, as far as this investigation is concerned, they still have yet to recover these bicycles. And I think that's going to be a big piece to this because I have to imagine that whoever wound up bringing about these individuals' deaths and their subsequent dismemberment, had something to do with those bikes. And I think that as an investigator, if you can find a location where they are deposited, it is going to give you an idea as to who was involved and at what point in time they were involved. 
because you're going to look for things like, you know, any kind of damage to the bikes, like were they broadsided by a car? Was any any of the frame, tubular frame that they used, was it bent in any way? I think that those are going to be considerations as well. And when they do finally get their hands on those bikes, trust me, they're going to go over them from stem to stern to try to find any, any kind of trace evidence. Right now, I'm kind of interested in, as far as damage goes, I'm kind of interested in, is there any transfer of paint on them? Were they sideswiped by a car, knocked off the road? You get that paint transfer, and paint is specifically identifiable in a forensic lab. You can actually trace it back to the source from, you know, who manufactured the paint. I mean, it's it's a, actually a fascinating area of forensics in the trace evidence division of most crime labs. And so they can do that, and it's it's going to be interesting if they recover them. Can you trace a bicycle tire as you would an automobile tire? Yeah, I mean, they, they have, look, I mean, they are specific to specific types of rims and more broadly to specific types of bicycles. And, you know, the types of tires that are on bikes are particular to a particular framework. If you're, you know, mountain biking or if it's a touring bicycle or, you know, you, you, have you seen these bikes that people ride at the at the beach that have these gigantic tires on them? Cruisers, yeah. Yeah, cruisers. And they're very distinctive. When tires come on a vehicle, you go to uh, a place that might sell a bicycle or you go to a place that sells a car, the tires that that, if it's a brand new car, the tires that that individual vehicle come with are referred to as OE, which means original equipment. And the OE, the original equipment, is specific to a particular type of manufacturer. And when you have crime labs, they have reference material there. It's one of the most fascinating. People have no idea how much reference material crime labs have. And just this is really kind of going far afield, but I'll I'll give you an idea. Uh, places like the FBI crime lab, they actually have millions of buttons, buttons. And they have just to identify buttons off of clothing and zippers and fasteners and all that stuff. Well, they have the same thing for tires. And so... If you have a tire, for instance, you can trace it back if it is OE or if it's a replacement tire, okay? And so if these bicycles are found and say the equipment has been changed out at some point in time, maybe they blew out a tire or the tire became worn or something like that, you can actually go back and trace it to the replacement manufacturer and, you know, who might distribute this particular tire in a location. And another thing with tire, with with tires themselves, they leave behind a mark, okay, particularly on soft soil. We see this all the time relative to motor vehicles when we're assessing a crime scene. But tires are the same way, and they have specific wear patterns as well. And it's even more specific with bicycles because bicycles directly support the weight of an individual, okay? And this is kind of fascinating. Because with cars, you know, it has a major suspension system, shock absorbers, all that stuff. So the weight of an individual is not going to impact a motor vehicle, a four-wheel motor vehicle, as much as it will, say, for instance, a bicycle tire. So if you're riding a bicycle and you're larger, there will be a distinct heavy impression that's left behind. So if you get off of this road and you're riding on a dirt surface... Maybe the, the tire tracks just suddenly end. Well, 
suddenly you know if you find that bike, you can marry it up to that track in particular. And that could be a piece of evidence here because we don't know where these bikes wound up. But what if the perpetrator went back after maybe, for instance, he did grievous harm to these individuals and killed them and then rode each bike down a hill into a place where he deposited them? Well, those tracks will be specific to that bicycle and also the weight of the individual that was riding it. And it's just one of those little nuanced areas that we look at in investigations. What about the distance traveled in the search? Because obviously you're not going to have near the mileage covered with a bicycle that you're going to have with a car. So how do you calculate how far to extend your search? Well, I I think that conversely, you're not going to have um, as small of an area as you might if an individual was a pedestrian. So you're going to kind of split the difference. You know, you have to think you got four friends riding along on bicycles and boy, would they stand out? I just had that thought that came to me, you know, boy, would they stand out if they're pulling wagons behind a bicycle? I've seen wagons behind bicycles. You know, I've got grandkids who go to the beach and we take bikes and you can get the little attachments that go on the back. And yeah, there are actual wagons, two wheeled wagons that you can pull behind a bike. Maybe they're homemade. They're really going to stand out. And you know, certainly you would be able to go a greater distance if you're not pulling the load as opposed to coming back if you filled up these wagons. And I think a lot of it has to do with the physical condition that the individuals were in at that particular time, the road and weather conditions, how hot was it? Oklahoma can get pretty hot even into, you know, that time of year when you're getting into the end of September, early October. Could they have continued? Did they have any drugs on board? Maybe that is yet to be determined. So all of those factors are going to play into this. And also how serviceable were these bicycles that they were on? Or was there sufficient inflation in the tires? Because that's a big deal with a bicycle. Were they mechanically sound? How far could you go on this thing? I don't know. Maybe they're brand new bikes and you could ride from one end of Oklahoma to the other end of Oklahoma. Drive all the way out in Panhandle for all I know. But you have to take all of those factors into consideration in addition to are you riding on unimproved roads or improved roads is this an area that is a two-lane blacktop that's recently been topped or is this an area where you've got a dirt road perhaps it's got a gravel base to it you're not going to be able to make as much distance or is it a road that is poorly surfaced maybe it's eroded in some way you're having to dodge potholes and that takes a toll on the individual operating the bicycle over a period of time. So I think that all those factors will come into play. And good old technology plays into this too, because police turn to digital information to help track the four men's movements after they left the home. Mark Chastain's wife used an app on her phone. Her husband's phone was tracked to a salvage yard, to a local gas station, and then to a second scrapyard using the data from that app on Mark Chastain's wife's phone. Good old technology, Joe. Yeah, who would have thunk it relative to a bicycle, right? I mean, obviously, it stands to reason every well, everybody is kind of an overstatement, but many people carry phones now. More, I think, do than don't. And so you've got 
you know, this modern technology of a phone that is essentially having an impact here relative to somebody riding a bicycle, a non-motorized vehicle going down the road. And yeah, they can track them with this. And, you know, another thing is, is really crucial here because with this mechanism, per these phones that they're tracking, one of the things that you get back is a time signature. And so dependent upon the time of day and dependent upon the individuals that may, say, for instance, travel up and down that road, say couriers or people that are delivery people or whatever the case might be, they have certain timetables that they stick to. And then you've got people that are going to work, coming home from work, leaving to go out and get groceries. Maybe somebody saw something during that period of time. And that's where canvassing comes in on the part of the detectives. They would go up and down this road and they're going to visit every home along this thoroughfare and they're going to knock on doors and they're going to say, hey, look, did you happen to see four guys on bicycles with wagons behind them? And, you know, it's not, that's not a passive thing. That's something that's like, yeah, I did. And I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing when I saw them. Or maybe somebody might say, hey, you know what? Those guys are up and down this road all the time. I've seen them. They all travel together on these bicycles, towing these wagons behind them. They'll leave going down the road, and they're empty, and they come back, and they're filled with stuff. So there's a lot of data that is going to point you to certain points along the continuum, along this timeline, if you will, relative to activity, location, time, all those sorts of things. And I got to tell you, Jackie, one of the things that's, that really stands out to me is that according to the police, apparently, you know, that second scrapyard that you mentioned, Jackie, that's going to be key because that is where the phone was actually turned off. And... I don't know. The sheriff actually said in a property just adjacent, just adjacent to that scrapyard where that phone went dead or went silent, he thinks that a violent act occurred, and that's the only thing he's saying about it. go to all of the trouble of shooting four grown men, taking their bodies apart, and then going to a river and tossing them in there. I think that that's a head scratcher for me because we know, just as I said earlier, that people go fishing in rivers. People visit rivers all of the time. Why a river? Why not some out-of-the-way place to bury why not burn? But for some reason, the individual that did this chose to go to the Grand Fork River. Well, before we get to the river, we know that violent event, police believe, happened next to the second scrapyard. So my question to you is, how do you kill four grown men in a shorter period of time? How do you subdue four men at once? I mean, you're looking at immediacy, boom, 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 boom. For the perpetrator to be able to survive this himself, it's not like you would shoot one person, wait 10 or 15 minutes and shoot somebody else. So how do you think 
the shootings happened. I got three things I want to explore here. First off is going to be speed. Whoever did this would have had to have acted in great speed because it's, you know, potentially one person that's involved in this. So they will have to be very quick with what they're going to do. And that speed is going to involve a weapon that is probably going to have a high capacity. Along with the speed, you're going to have to have a number of bullets. You know, you'll have to have potentially a lot of ammunition in the magazine. Secondly, is going to be accuracy. You've got four guys. You know, after you drop the first guy, unless they're subdued in some way that we're not aware of yet, where they're tied, for instance, and they are immobile. Maybe they're laying on the ground. Maybe he has initially subdued them in some way. Maybe he shot them in a way that didn't bring about their lives immediately, but he tied them up, put them on the ground. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If you're a smoker looking for an alternative to traditional tobacco, you might feel uncertain at the thought of changing things up. Maybe you're ready to make a switch, but don't know where to start. Maybe you've tried vaping, thought it wasn't your thing. Maybe you've heard of smokeless nicotine products, but aren't familiar with the options. Meet Zen, America's number one nicotine pouch. Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life. Because it's smoke-free, hands-free, and hassle-free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Zen is a satisfying tobacco alternative that puts you in control of your nicotine experience, which means Zen pairs well with you. Visit Zen.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zen. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. You're going to have to be accurate with the weapon and skilled. Accuracy goes to skill in this particular case. So you would have to be skilled and familiar with the weapon that you're using. And I think third, you're going to have to have a weapon unless you were pinpoint accurate. You're going to have to have a weapon 
that potentially has a high muzzle velocity, something that's very powerful when you take them down. Because you can bring a smaller caliber weapon to bear, say like a 22 rifle, but just because you hit somebody with a 22 rifle doesn't mean that you're going to take them down. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe, I have no idea, but maybe something like a military platform type weapon that has potentially a high capacity magazine or another type of weapon platform that might be involved in this could in fact be something like a shotgun, okay, that's got, say, loaded with buckshot where you're going to be able to maybe take out two people at one time. Who knows at this point? For all I know, we've got a perpetrator that is a world-class pistol champion, and they're using, you know, a 9 millimeter handgun or something. We don't have quite enough information. We do know, in fact, that all four of these individuals were, in fact, shot. And in order to disable them, to kill them, and get them in this specific location, you're going to have to have a lot of factors that are going to come into play at once. This is not the movies, okay? People react to the sound of gunfire. So if you're the first guy that gets shot, there's an awareness. First off, you've heard a crack in the air. You've heard a crack. If you're one of the other guys, you see your buddy drop to the ground. Maybe he's groaning in pain. I don't know. Maybe he dies instantly. But there's going to be an awareness on the other three, on the parts of the other three. So what do you do at that moment in time? Are you a deer in headlights? Or are you going to bolt? Are you going to try to run for the bushes? Are you going to try to, I don't know, just get away, hide behind something? Or are you going to get down on your knees and beg for your life? You know, it's hard to know what that dynamic was at that particular time, or were they just in a position where they couldn't extricate themselves from it? They were just in a position where they were just, they were going to be shot and they were going to be killed right there in that location because, like I said, they had been restrained in some way. So we'll know a bit more as this begins to develop and as time goes by, but I find one of the things I find very interesting about what the sheriff said, Jackie, is that this is an area where a violent act took place. And I think more than likely, it's very important that we kind of try to define, well, what does a violent act mean? It would mean to me, not just the shooting, but where the dismemberment took place. At first blush, I'm thinking the same thing. And, you know, what what is... I think, you know, I don't want to wax too philosophical here, but what is violence? You know, what, how do you define violence and what does that mean in this context? Because if you say in an outdoor open area, and I'm assuming that that's what this is, I think probably the first thing that everybody's mind runs to, and I can almost bet you the dollars to donuts right now, is the first thing you think about is an area involving a lot of blood a lot of blood that's going to be out there at that specific area. And maybe the ground was super saturated. Maybe it was on the surface of plastic and the person didn't get rid of the plastic. Maybe it's on leaves that have fallen and you see contact traces of blood all over the place. Maybe the ground where this event took place, the dirt itself, maybe it's a sandy soil out there. You can actually walk over and see evidence of it. You know, I've worked cases where there was no longer a body, but there was a huge, there was a huge area of blood in that area. And you know, one of the things that I saw very commonly that people might not think about, I think the general public always associates the development of maggots and fly activity and that sort of thing taking place on bodies. But did you know that 
In the absence of a body, but with the presence of blood, you can have maggot activity in that area as well. I've walked out to areas where people had been killed and then removed, and there would be pools of what was blood, and of course it was turning at that point in time, and it would just be writhing with maggots, and you'd have flies buzzing all around, and flies will develop in those areas, particularly if it's in direct sunlight. You'll have ants that are in that area. You'll have all manner of insect life in that area because what are they seeking out? Well, they're seeking out the protein that's contained in that blood. So you'll have this kind of larval development that's going on there, even in the absence of blood. And, I, and the reason I'm emphasizing this, and I think that this is kind of interesting, is that how did the police know that this was an area where a violent event took place? Because we kind of mentioned this early on that the bodies were found in the river. So what's going to draw them to that specific location? Was it just the sight of blood or was it the fact that you had larval development in there and you step over that area and the next thing you know, and this is very common as well. And I've, I've had this happen. You'll have flies that are actually, you know, indwelling bodies, arresting on bodies. And once you show up, they begin to light on you as well. They're coming off of those bodies or off of that body and lighting on your person as an investigator. I don't think any people really realize that. And you'll have them crawling all over you. And I really wonder if, if maybe that had happened or maybe it was smell that drew them over there because blood gives off decompositional odor just like an intact body does. You can actually catch a whiff of it. I wonder if they were drawn there by smell, but something drew them there to where they recognized that something horrible had happened in that specific location. If this is indeed the location where the dismemberment took place, you have the possibility of commingling of blood. Walk me through the steps in a lab, in an autopsy, to be able to distinguish how many blood types or blood sources that you have. Yeah, this is a nightmare, to say the very least. Early on as an investigator, you, you learn that you just don't work on the assumption that something is what you think it is as a result of what you've observed with the naked eye. You cannot work on that assumption. And so just because you see a red dried spot or red wet spot on a surface, you, you can think in your mind that, yeah, that's blood. But would I write that in a report without confirming it? No way. No way. You never do that. So you have to be able to take blood samples from this location, they would have taken it, it, and this is assuming that there is blood there. You're going to take blood samples from multiple, let's say we have a huge pool of blood. I love the fact that you use the term commingle, Jackie. That's, that's fantastic because that's what's going to happen. Blood is very viscous, but it is a liquid. And so if you've got bodies that are layered on top of one another, you will have a commingling of blood, particularly if you've got gunshot wounds where you've got seepage that's going on. And then on top of that, you may have had this dismemberment activity that was going on there, and you're going to generate a volume of blood associated with that. So when, when this blood is essentially collected from the scene, and it would be collected in a variety of different locations, multiple samples from all over this area, it will be taken out and it will be typed. Now, the type, when you begin to type this blood, well, first off, you have to confirm that it's blood. And there's a variety of tests that we go through to do that. Once this unknown substance that you suspect is blood is brought back to the lab and examined at that point in time, you're going to conduct a test at the lab to 
confirm that it is, in fact, blood. And then it's at that point in time that once you've made that determination, you're going to be able to begin the process of typing the blood. And there's major groups that we look for. We look for O. We look for B. We look for A. We look for AB. And so you can potentially have those groups. And if you have, say, for instance, two O's, you're going to try to determine whether or not it's O positive or O negative. Okay. And you'll have this commingling that's going on. And the trick is to try to separate, you know, all of these samples and see if there is, I think nowadays as well, one of the things you have to factor in here is there recoverable DNA out of that blood because the DNA sample that you're going to get out of that blood is going to be far more specific than just say, for instance, a blood type. Dr. Carl Landsteiner, you know, first identified how to type blood, you know, back in the 1800s. It's nothing new. It's something we've been doing for a long time. It's just that it's taken a while for it to kind of develop to the point now where, yeah, the blood is essentially a medium for us to get to the DNA. And that's where the real tale is going to be told. The process itself is is very, very complicated in order to separate it out to this specific point. And you will they will, in fact, do blood typing tests that are very specific and react to particular types of blood. So you will get a a specific indicator in this test that it is, in fact, a a pause, a neg, o pause, o neg. The trick is to go back, and since you have known victims now that you've recovered their bodies, you have to try to understand who these individuals are. If you know who they are and you already know from an antemortem before death standpoint who they are, maybe the family or maybe the hospital will know what their blood type is. And at that point in time, once it's separated out and once you identify the individual types, it's at that point that you can then tie it back to the individual bodies and hopefully you can retrieve DNA from it. Not all blood types are interchangeable. You know this from trying to give blood. There is a universal donor, but if you were an A, you can't give blood to somebody who's not. So when you retrieve a sample from the ground, from a body, from anywhere, and it is two different blood types... What does that look like on a slide or, or how you look at them? Does it separate? Does it blend? Does it, what does it do? Well, it's going to be at a molecular level and you'll be able to identify it by these markers that are contained on the surface of the red blood cell itself. And this is going to what's called the RH factor in the blood. And so they will present in a very particular way that is unique to that particular blood type. And that's the way you can identify them in testing in the laboratory. So to kind of pull them apart. And one of the problems with commingling of blood is that the blood itself begins to literally separate as it goes through the process of decomposition. So you'll have you'll have the blood cells begin to separate away, the RBCs, red blood cells, they begin to separate away from the serum. And you'll see this kind of migration that takes place. You can see it really well on a floor, like on a, a solid, you know, smooth floor surface. You'll see the serum that when it separates out, it's got kind of a yellow color to it. And there's a time factor that's associated with that. And a lot of people have opined that potentially, when you have exposed blood on surfaces like this, that this is a way to 
determined postmortem interval, but they haven't been able to kind of lock that down to the point where they can use that as a mechanism for that purpose. But once those blood cells are separated out and they are collected, it's at that point that the testing can be done. And then the specific blood types by virtue of the RH factor that they're tested for, you know, where these little antigens set up on the cells themselves, you'll be able to determine what type of blood it is and from whom it originated. y'all ever catch a glimpse out of something out of the corner of your eye maybe when you're going down the road you can't believe that possibly you just saw what you think you saw or maybe just walking down the street I, that's happened to me many times and it's almost like you want to back up and confirm what your eye saw and your brain is saying no, no 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 there's no way you saw that you want to maybe hang a yui and go back and see if if that was real for that moment i can not begin to imagine what it would be like to be a civilian driving down the road and look over maybe the edge of the bridge and look down into that muddy water and see something that just didn't fit. And that's pretty much what happened. The bodies were discovered after someone called police saying they saw something, but were not sure what they saw and they needed police to go check it out. And that's how it was discovered that these bodies were dismembered. Paint a picture for me of what that could have possibly been, Joe. It's not been released yet. But, I mean, are we looking at, what, a bone sticking up at this point? I mean, would whatever the person saw have been skeletonized by this point? Not in this short a period of time. Maybe what they had seen may have been a bloated torso when they looked over there, because one of the things that happens during the process of decomposition and, you know, you hear people talk about bodies being swollen. Well, that, that's true. And they're swollen because there is a process that's called pyolysis that's going on in the body. And it's at a cellular level. And essentially the body begins to lack of a better terminology. The body is beginning to digest itself. Well, what's the product of digestion? Well, one of the products is gas. And so bodies begin to swell, and when they swell, they float. And you look down, and I can only imagine through my own mind's eye, you're looking into this watery area down there, and you see this kind of round, bulbous thing sticking up out of the water. And I've come across bodies like this before. And you look down, and you see this odd shape in the water. And maybe, maybe to this person, it looked like, a body they didn't know but i do know this they went and contacted the authorities and said look y'all gotta get down here and check this out because it's not just one thing i'm seeing i'm seeing several items down here the question is i think what was the depth of the water of where these remains were found is it shallow so that maybe part of the remain was touching the bottom and then kind of sticking up and here's another interesting kind of proposition this is on a river and i wonder the grand fork is like a branch of the canadian river and the canadian river is a pretty sizable river in that part of the country and i wonder if there is a a dam upstream and they had closed the dam off perhaps and the water level had dropped 
to, and that's something you can't really kind of plan on. And by virtue of the fact that they saw these items from a, from a position of height, looking down on it, remember they're in a car when they see it, maybe if the perpetrator just simply went to the bridge and tossed these items over and decided to be done with it, as opposed to say, for instance, going out into the water even further and depositing those items out there. Maybe you wouldn't have seen them as readily, but it maybe it was a matter of convenience. And that can be a clue for you if you're an investigator in a case like this, because if you're in a car, maybe you're, maybe it's late at night, maybe you've accomplished this horrible task of dismembering these bodies and you pull up in your car or your truck and you begin to toss them out. Well, when you do that, any remnant of blood, and there would have been blood, would transfer into the vehicle. So if you find, you know, we were talking about blood just a few moments ago, if you have find blood that is specific to one of these victims that's in the car, you have a lot of explaining to do to the authorities at that point in time. You know, you don't know this guy. How did his blood make it into your vehicle? And they're going to ask you questions. Was your vehicle with you the entire time yesterday? Did you have the keys? Did you lend it to anybody? Because they're going to knock down all of those possibilities as far as an alibi goes. The cops are going to ask those questions, and I'll expect to have answers to them. And the trick is you have to get your hands on that vehicle as soon as you can as an investigator so that it's not cleaned up or there's an attempt to eradicate anything in there. And then go through that vehicle with a fine-tooth comb and find any kind of human remain that might be in there, whether it's tissue. You know, we're talking about a dismemberment here, so you can have bits of tissue, you can have bits of bone, bone dust, and, of course, you can have blood as well. The information released on the deaths of these four men tell us that they were shot and dismembered. Once the bodies are recovered, how does those two facts interfere with finding out what happened. It can be a gigantic roadblock for you because most of the cases of dismemberment that I've that I've either worked or or have observed as working in the morgue or certainly on the scene as an as an investigator, they don't come off with surgical precision. The perpetrators generally cut wherever it's convenient for them, where they think they need to do it. Now, if you have somebody, and this this is a real thing, if you have somebody that has a background in butchering, they've butchered meat before, pigs, cows, that sort of thing, they're going to know what types of instruments to show up with. But for the most part, these are not surgical cuts that are being done. There are a lot of times where you'll find, say, for instance, if somebody has been blasted with a shotgun and they are dismembered, say, for instance, they're blasted in the leg. Well, automatically, if you're the person doing the dismemberment, a goodly portion of your job at that point could have already been done for you. You're just going to have to saw through the bone. You're not going to have to cut through the leg. So it'll be a very atypical kind of incision and also sawing that goes on in the dismemberment process. So it's it's going to be very randomized. And so if you have wounds, bullet wounds, that are tracking through the body, let's say, for instance, you've got somebody that's shot in the back, and it's tracking from, say, above to below, from right to left. It goes across what's called the mediastinum, which is like the mid part of the body, and it exits out of the, the rib. Well, 
on the, it comes in on the right rear and exits out of the front left out of out of a rib cage then in order for the individual to do that dissection they might say well hey i'll just i'll cut across the the trunk of the body well when you start to get into the trunk of the body it's at that point in time that you've disrupted that bullet path and so it's hard to make heads or tails out of it and then, you know, if you have individuals, one of the things that I found kind of curious over the years is that with dismemberment cases, it's amazing how many cases that we have where the heads are missing. And some people will say, well, serial killers will do that and take them as trophies. Yeah, they do. But if you have heads that have been taken off of bodies, sometimes individuals, the heads will be separated in the sense that they're dismembered or removed from the rest of the body, but they'll also get separated in disposal. So if you've got a subject that has been shot in the head, you might not be able to account for that gunshot wound that they have. And that's gone. You know, it's not like it's just going to be there necessarily nestled against the rest of the remains, unless of course they're packaged together. That harkens back to any number of cases that are out there where heads were missing off of some pretty infamous cases. So you're not going to have everything in total. And of course, you know, that that's going to create also another problem. How in the world, how in the world do you get all of these parts back together again? When it comes to retrieving the body parts, how is it done? Each part is transported to the morgue or the coroner's office, wherever the autopsy is going to be done. The body is going to be stored, but I'm confused. If you want a body part to not sweat and stay pristine, as we've talked before about bagging hands, you use paper. But body bags are plastic or rubber. What's the difference? Wow. You just made a point, Jackie, that not many people pick up on. We do talk about using paper as opposed to plastic. When, and, and isn't it interesting? And I'm not trying to diminish the dead, but what I am saying is that with a body, the deceased or the remains of the deceased are essentially the biggest piece of evidence that you have. So what do we do? Well, practice has always been that you look for those points of contact that are the higher probability you're going to harvest evidence from. So that's why we bag the hands specifically. I've bagged heads before that are attached to the bodies. In this case, when you have a, a dismemberment, my suspicion is, is that you would take a clean white sheet and you would individually wrap each dismembered portion of the body. Okay. There's no way. I mean, no way at the scene that if you've got these dispersed over what would be called a field, an evidence field lying on the bottom down there, there's no way at the scene that you can kind of reassemble the body out there. The, the conditions are not conducive to that. And like you said, in Oklahoma, where they have a state medical examiner's office, it is going to be incumbent to get all of those pieces wrapped. I don't know if they use bags, paper bags, but you would wrap them certainly in a clean white sheet individually and then place them into a body bag. And that's the way it happens. And yes, they are rubberized plastic and you would get them to the morgue as soon as you can. And it's at that point in time that you can begin to try to make a determination as to who goes with what part at that point in time. And how do you do that? Yeah, it's tough. 
one of the interesting things here is if we can just kind of back up a little bit is that we know that the bodies were dismembered. Okay. That's been stated clearly. So how were they dismembered? What tool was utilized? Let's say you're talking like with a a sharp edged instrument that is more of a crushing instrument where we're talking about a maul, which is like an ax, but it also looks like a sledgehammer on one side and an ax head on the other. Tremendous crushing injury with that. Well, if you slam down onto a body with a maul, you're not going to have a clean cut. As a matter of fact, you're going to crush the bone. Okay. And it, it would be very difficult, I think, at least just from the skeletal perspective to marry that bone up with the attachment, say if an arm is, is taken away at near the shoulder, it would be hard, say mid humerus, it'd be very difficult to marry that up if it's a crushing type of instrument. Whereas if you used a hacksaw, it will leave specific identifying marks and it's almost like putting a puzzle together and you have to think of it that way in the morgue and you would take a lot of time to see if you can actually get this thing to kind of marry up with the marks that are left behind and it would be that simple. Certainly a more scientific approach and I suspect that they probably did this because the medical examiner in the state of Oklahoma is very sophisticated. I would imagine that they would do DNA sampling from each one of these remains. I mean, every single piece that has been dismembered and they would wait for those results to come back before they actually essentially marshal all of the pieces back together again and then release the bodies to the families. You know, one thing that we did not touch on about recovery of these bodies, you know, for me, this is, there's something disturbing about this and I I have to give a tip of the cap to police divers, particularly those that are skilled at crime scene, underwater crime scene. When you're in a river like Grand Fork up there in Oklahoma, that river, if you go into that river, I would suspect that if you held your hand up in front of your face, you would not be able to see it six inches out. It's that muddy most of the time. And these remains are kind of floating about. Maybe someone were resting on the bottom. So guess what the divers have to do? This is a this is a a feel event where they go in there and they are going to actually feel along the bottom and maybe they're submerged and they're kind of crawling along the bottom and touching all of these spaces and they they literally have to do it with a certain amount of precision, just like we do at a crime scene, but can you imagine working a crime scene blind? Because that's what they're doing. They have to document each one of these dismembered remains where they rest. And I've seen them where they'll take actual, in really deep water, what they'll do is they will attach these little flags that have little buoys on them that float on the surface and they'll attach them to the bottom and you'll see these flags all kind of floating out there in the water and they'll snap a picture of that. And it gives you an idea of the kind of the disbursement pattern that's going on. And then, of course, they're skilled at underwater photography, but how are you going to accomplish that task when you can't see your hand in front of your face? So, So, you know, this is in fact a crime scene and you have to document it. You have to document it carefully and try to determine where each one of these pieces rest out there. And once they're collected, of course, you know, you go through the process that we talked about of getting these remains back to the state medical examiner's office so they can begin the process of putting them together and ultimately trying to determine what happened and when it happened. As it stands right now, a person of interest is being questioned, but he is not considered a suspect as yet. And that man is Joe Kennedy. Again, 
He is a person of interest. He has not been named a suspect. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.